0: Luke chapter 2 I'm Going to focus on verses 8 through 14, but we'll read verses 1 through 20 of Luke chapter 2. I thought we'd have one one more Reflection on the birth accounts as we head into Christmas week. So that gives us opportunity to look at the second chapter of Luke tonight. Luke 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's holy and inspired word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Who is lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. In case you haven't noticed, I've found uh, John Newton rather enriching to my soul here in this in this Christmas season. So we get uh, a little bit more of him tonight. He, of course, was he was famous for many things, writing "Amazing Grace," probably most of all. But he was very concerned about Handel's Messiah in his time because of really the the artistic glory and beauty. And one of the things that he wanted to make sure of was that. People did not miss the 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 truths that were found therein. Of course, Handel's Messiah's wonderful uh, arrangement of scripture texts set to music, and so he went through the entire oratorio and did every single text and preached every single text to his congregation. He finds volume four in his works, a big thick work. All of those sermons, uh, we have them and. He had mentioned many times in those sermons that that there is often this dynamic in the world that the things that are of the, the, the highest artistic quality and really the, the elite of the elite in beauty, particularly in his world, those who would be able to partake of such a thing, for instance, to see Handel's Messiah at Westminster Abbey, it would be Really, the the richest of the rich, or the elite of the elite of society, really that top upper echelon of uh, of the population, and certainly entertainment is more democratized than our world now. Uh, many people you can go to almost any concert you, you want to go to, but there is, are still those uh, elite aspects about entertainment, right? Uh, only certain people are invited to the award shows. And even at your your basic uh, concert, you do have the best seats in the house, of course. And uh, common folk, those who can't fork over an unlimited amount of money, they will not be able to experience things in the same kind of way. And so it's interesting, as you think about this uh, very famous Christmas passage in Luke chapter 2, you have uh, the angels in in heaven and most, I would say most pastors and uh, Christian theologians would say that or have said that this was a song and uh, we've seen that show up in the Christmas tradition. Many songs that uh, that highlight this and certainly angels we have heard on high is uh, probably chief among all of them. But here you have lowly shepherds and they are... Uh, made the audience to perhaps one of the most glorious things that has ever happened in all of the world. They were not charged any admission price. They did not have to elbow their way uh, through a crowd. Rather, uh, they're keeping watch over their flocks. And unexpectedly and instantly, seemingly out of nowhere, all of a sudden you have uh, an angel speaking to them and then a whole host of angels praising God in the way that uh, this, the word describes to us. Before we move on from the the shepherds, there's just a a few things I'd like us to consider about how this announcement would have operated in their minds. The shepherds who worked around Bethlehem, now Bethlehem is right next to Jerusalem, it's about five or six miles in between those, those two towns, and the shepherds who worked in and around Bethlehem would have been those who raised lambs, raised sheep, to be sacrificed in the temple. These would have been for the the guilt offerings and the burnt offerings which dealt with the taking away of sins in old covenant worship so that would have been a, a large part of what they were doing. Obviously, there were other reasons why they shepherded and, and other, thing, other purposes that their flocks served. But there needed to be a constant supply of sheep, not just for the food market, but for the offerings of sin and guilt that were always going on. And often, when a mother sheep came to give birth, they would withdraw from the field and find some cover. They would go to uh, a cave nearby or some kind of shelter for protection. And in the event that uh, those who are raising flocks in and around the temple who would have been known to provide some of that supply for the temple. In the event that a lamb was born without blemish, they would wrap that little lamb in swaddling cloths in order to prevent it from injuring itself and bringing any possible blemishes. Those lambs that would be offered in the temple for the sin offering had to be without blemish. And oftentimes animals, when they're uh, kind of just born, they'll thrash around, and sometimes they would uh, injure themselves in that way. So shepherds often would wrap a, an unblemished lamb in swaddling cloths, and this would have been a huge part of uh, of their understanding, particularly the shepherds that we're thinking about tonight. So when the angel of the Lord makes this announcement to the shepherd, the shepherds, and he says they will find the babe wrapped in swaddling claws. Immediately, they would, have, they would have wondered why this baby was being treated as an unblemished lamb. It was, of course, because they were seeing the lamb of God. To what extent they understood those things is a mystery to us, but the Bible brings these things to us so that we find all the more glory in, uh, in the Christmas story. This Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world by providing in his own body the full and final sacrifice for sin. A beautiful thing to think about even as we uh, begin to look at this passage together. So the appearance of the angels. The shepherds are abiding in their fields, keeping watch over their flocks. The angels appear and this is presented as something that would have taken the breath away of, of the shepherds. We read that they were terrified. I, I, as you'll notice, if I use this in the call to worship once a time or once a year in our Christmas season, I always love the King James. They were sore afraid. they were sore afraid. The glory of the Lord shone around these shepherds. Whatever this was, specifically, it is at Least a radiance of the glory which heavenly beings carry with them. Angels are not God, but they are heavenly beings, spiritual beings, and they carry with them a a glory. There's a glory that goes before him that catches uh, us in awe. There are, are some instances in Scripture where a man falls down before an angel. In the book of Revelation, this happens, for instance. The angel says, don't do that. Don't worship me because I am not God. But the instinct is the glory that they carry with them. The the brightness, the radiance of the glory causes us to stop in our tracks. You can think of this the way you would think more in the ancient world of messengers from a king's court. If a king wanted to send a message, he would send his messenger, not uh, dressed in, in kind of street clothes, but he would want them to be decked out in kind of royal regalia, that, that there would be a, a presence that they would carry with them, because that would be, in a sense, the, the glory of the king is being carried with the messenger, and that's what angels do. They carry the glory of God with them. So they are terrified, but the angel says, do not be Afraid, probably easier said than done. Suddenly, a whole host of angels appears, and this becomes a glory that we cannot even begin to imagine. It's no wonder that, right when they hear this, they want to go and check it out. You can't take in an event like this, and the angels say, Now go and search for this child. Can you imagine? That the shepherds would just kind of stay there and say, ah, it's probably not even worth uh, listening to them. No, of course, they've seen this glory and they now go and search for this child that they have been told about. This causes us uh, to realize that in some ways, this is uh, really the first announcement proclamation of Jesus Christ after his birth, right? After the birth of Christ, kind of the, the first proclamation of the good news that he has come. It was not Men who have spoken this, but angels, angels gave this announcement of the good news. Now, today, it is not angels who speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it is men. Perhaps we think that if angels were the ones who were doing the preaching, the church would be in a much better place, right? Men don't strike us with the kind of awe that angels do to return to our beloved uh, John Newton. He says this, The glorious gospel of the blessed God with respect to its dignity, depth, and importance may seem a fitter theme for the tongue of an angel than of a man, but angels never sinned, and though they might proclaim its excellency, they could not from experience speak of its efficacy. It's fitting reading uh, Newton write about this, who was formerly the captain of a slave ship. He said this from from a pulpit back in England, and he was a testament that the gospel changes lives from sinners into sons and servants, and that is one of the greatest testimonies to this truth. So then he goes on, in this respect, sinful worms are better qualified to preach to others concerning him by whom they have themselves been healed and saved when a man gets up to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim that Jesus Christ is come and that Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, is the Lord and Savior of the world, that that is a man who has himself been changed and saved by this message. His sins have been forgiven. That's not to exclude the possibility that there are preachers out there who themselves are hypocrites, but we trust that those who are rightly preaching the gospel have themselves known this transformation, this glory, this forgiveness of the gospel. He says their weakness is better suited to show that the influence and success of the gospel is wholly owing to the power of God. And this is the way that God has ordained that the good news would be proclaimed. And so you think about the shepherds who take in this, this gospel message. They have been, the angels have been sent by God To proclaim this good news. The shepherds go out changed. And today there is a a similar picture taking place. But those who hear the words of the scriptures being preached. Those who sit under the preaching of the word. Are to accept that God has ordained this way. Not angels. But imperfect men. Fallible men. Who have themselves known the grace of God. Would we too Uh, hold on to what God has ordained and understand this is the way that he wants us to move forward in the Christian life. That's not to say, I'm not saying that your pastor is an angel, that's not what I'm saying at all. But this is the way that God has ordained it. And would we too go forward changed and transformed by the word that is proclaimed just as the shepherds did. The song that the angels sang was simple, but in it we can find much Uh, much for our spiritual good. In this song, we find really a concise statement of the two ultimate purposes of God. What are the, the kind of two overarching purposes of God in history? His glory and the good of his people. The glory of God and the good of his people. And that's what the angels are singing about here. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with whom God has favored the coming to earth of this child was to be for the fullest manifestation of God's glory and our good. That's what Christmas accomplishes. It accomplishes the glory of God. It accomplishes the good of man. Uh, we think about the, the glory of God. What are, what are some aspects of the glory of God? Or let's dig a little deeper into that idea of the glory of God. What, what is it that, that God is Glorified in? What are his attributes or his works? Well, taking our cue uh, from Newton, I'm going to look at three things the glory of God's goodness, the glory of God's power, and the glory of God's wisdom. The glory of God's goodness first. When Christ came to earth, God did not become more good than he already was. Everything that God is, he is fully and perfectly. He never advances or grows. He doesn't grow in strength. Some people need to go and exercise so they can get stronger. God doesn't grow in his strength. He doesn't grow in his love. He doesn't grow in his goodness. So when Christ came to earth, God did not become more good than he already was. But you can think about it as God, in a sense, goes public in a new way with his goodness. He publishes his goodness in a way that has not been known up until this time. This is why the angels sing, glory to God in the highest. Why? Because now the world is experiencing an aspect of the goodness of God that up until this point has not been known. And there is no way to estimate the goodness of God who is pleased to give his son to pay our ransom for the price of sin. The angels, how much the angels understand what is to unfold is, is another mystery to us. Uh, what, the, what the heavenly beings knew about the decree of God and the plan of God. But the wheels are now set in motion. And you think of heavenly beings that understand in a way that we don't because of what they take in in a sensory way. The glory of God, the brightness of God's glory. And now that this God has come to earth In Jesus Christ, and they come and they say, Glory to God in the highest. Why? Because the human race is about to experience the goodness of God in a way unlike anything else that has ever happened. It was only Christ who could have done this. And yet Christ was the treasure of God's heart. That's why we we can't estimate what what it what it was. For the Father to give the Son. And that is why they sing glory to God in the highest. Glory, the glory of His goodness. Next, the glory of His wisdom. The angels are glorifying God for this manifestation of His wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that God was acting in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of His will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The glory of the incarnation shows God's wisdom. There was no other method of salvation that could have done things, unfolded things in a way nearly as glorious as what the incarnation did. And what other than the gospel of grace, what other than the story of Jesus Christ can accomplish what the gospel does? When we hear the the gospel message proclaimed to us, what does it do? We become ashamed of our sins. We're, We're reminded of the majesty of God, the holiness of God, that in and of ourselves, we have absolutely nothing to bring to God. And yet at the same time, So we're filled with a a shame of our sins and yet at the same time we're filled with a courage to look to that Savior. We are filled with confidence because we say, well yes, in and of ourselves we are nothing. But we look to this Savior who was given out of the goodness of God. Who was out of the wisdom of God made manifest on the earth. And so we are filled with shame on the one hand and courage on the other filled with great confidence to come before God in great boldness because we know the message of salvation is, yes, of course you cannot do it on your own. Yes, of course you cannot come before this God in and of yourselves, but look to the Savior that I have given. Nothing other than the gospel can so strip us of self-confidence and fill us with faith-filled confidence. And still, even more so, it makes us eager to serve. You ever think about that? That the gospel is salvation freely given. And, and people who sometimes hear the gospel will say, well, if you're saved by grace, then, then you can just kind of have that transaction with God and go and live however you want to live. And those are people who don't even, even come close to understanding what it's all about because those who are hit with the truth, the reality of the gospel, it becomes our great joy. It becomes our, our only central defining purpose to serve the God who has saved us. So what other than the gospel can do this, can give people something that is absolutely free? And yet at the same time, it binds everyone who receives it to the Lord, to the King, all of their days anything else that could strip someone of all self-confidence and yet fill us with great courage and boldness to appear before God. The glory of God's wisdom seen in the incarnation. Glory to God in the highest. His wisdom, His goodness, His wisdom, and then thirdly, His power. God is glorified in His power. It is a marvelous thing. And it takes power that we cannot even fathom, that God could turn the action of all of the the sin, all of the the muckiness, all of the messiness of human history, that he could remain sovereign over, over everything, for every human heart, for every human action in some mysterious way, to such an extent that even while men go on sinning, God is not thwarted in his purposes. And even those who would go about, you think in the life of Jesus Christ, all of those who were set against him, all of those who wanted uh, Jesus to to be out of the picture. And yet God accomplishes all of his purposes in and through his servant. So Acts 4, uh, 27 and 28, we read this. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do... Whatever your hand, that's God's hand. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here you have Herod, uh, wicked ruler, Pontius Pilate, Roman governor. Uh, These men wrapped up in all kinds of of sinful political machinations. You have the, the Jewish leaders, the religious establishment. And that's just a tiny microcosm. Just a tiny picture of human history, of all that needed to happen to bring about the birth of Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and then beyond the life of Christ, that God still, in all of his sovereignty, continually works out and applies the benefits of Christ to every single human heart whom he has appointed for salvation. God is glorified in his power because no matter what, Any creature wills to do. And no matter what earthly power anyone has, God is never taken off of his purposes. He's never thwarted. And no one can ever prevent him from accomplishing what he has purposed. It's a great reminder set for us there in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is kind of a wonderful picture of uh, the sovereignty of God. It says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the kings of the earth, right, all, all earthly power, if it were connected together, if they conspired together against the Lord, and then what happens? The one who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord Holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury. Saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. God says to all the powers that be on the earth. My king is going to Zion. My king is going to reign. And no one can stop him from doing that. Glory to God in the highest. For his goodness, for his wisdom, and for his power. The next line of this angelic chorus is, On earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Most of us, again, remember the, the old King James. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The, and with that older reading, we tend to think of this chorus as uh, highlighting God's glory uh, in his work. Glory to God in the highest. And then our work, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Men. But that is actually not the, the, the way to understand this song. The, the angels aren't saying, Glory to God, and then men can create peace on earth if they have goodwill towards one another. That is kind of the message we receive at Christmas time, and it is good to be filled with goodwill towards our neighbor. That's a good thing in a Christian way, to our Christian friends, to our non Christian friends. But that's not what the angels are singing about. It is God who makes peace. And the peace that the angels are singing about is ultimate peace. It's eternal peace. The angels are announcing that peace is upon those whom God bestows his grace. The recipients of his favor according to God's good pleasure. The birth of Jesus was prophesied to be for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. In other words, Jesus was going to be a troublemaker. He was going to create problems for many. One New Testament scholar says this, The meaning seems to be not that divine peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is already present, but that at the birth of the Savior, God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accord with his good pleasure. In other words, God is being glorified right now Because this child has been born. This child is the Savior. And the wheels are set in motion. And therefore, all of those whom God has been pleased to appoint for his favor, there is peace. All of those whom God has promised salvation in his own divine decree, it is as good as done. Because God will not fail in all that he has set to do. Christ makes peace. Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's only in the cross that we will find peace. Thus, those who reject the work of the cross have no peace. Another theologian says this, the knowledge of this mercy, when revealed to the sinner's heart, subdues his enmity constrains him to throw down his arms and to make unreserved submission and surrender of himself, informs to him a temper of love and confidence and brings him to a habit of cheerful obedience. That's what the the peace of Christ does to those who know it. Goodwill, divine favor. Uh, What about that last phrase there in, in the chorus the angels sing? This is the assurance of having God's favor. In our worship liturgy, this is the assurance of pardon. Why do we take time every week to just in simple words and simple phrases as we find them in Scripture to say the gospel message, the gospel of grace, the gospel of forgiveness? It's because we must grow to appreciate the fact that there is no blessing on earth that we can know that is like hearing the explicit assurance that God's favor rests on you because there's nothing that you have done to deserve God's favor. There's nothing that you have done to receive that favor. We were once rebels and at enmity with God, and yet his favor rests upon us. He is our portion and heaven is our home. So we think about all of these things. Glory to God in the highest for his wisdom, for his goodness, for his power. And there is peace for those whom God has appointed the recipients of his favor. It's for that reason we ought to strive to make this the song of our hearts. That we will seek God's glory in our life, our world, because he has assured us of our good. He grants us this marvelous blessing of peace, accomplished in Christ, done forever, never to be taken away. That assurance of peace and the glory of God, understanding that God is glorifying himself no matter what. He will not be thwarted in his purposes. So when we act in ways to further publish that glory of God in our own lives, we're going with The flow of the universe, that's where all of God's creation is headed. Everything is headed towards that final result of God's glory and our good. So we make this song the song of our hearts, and we live in ways that reflect it. Christ, the Savior, is born. What great good news. Let us sing that good news together as we depart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask that you will allow us to reflect upon these things in the coming week, to celebrate rightly, to feast, to rejoice, uh, to thank you for all that you have done. Fill us with confidence in the midst of a world uh, that is like sinking sand. And everywhere we look, people say there is nowhere to rest, there is no no rock on which to stand. May we be standing upon the rock. May we be fearless in the midst of this world that has nowhere to place their hope. May we hope in Jesus Christ. May we uh, have our hearts filled with this song, the glory of God and the good of man, knowing that you have given us all of these things. Fill our lives with these things by the power of the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.